Welcome back. I'm here with Anna today. Uh, it's great to be here again discussing IO related things. Uh, and today we thought we would cover pneumonitis. And I think pneumonitis is an area that is a little bit complex, takes a little bit of thought, um, and can be quite tricky with some of the uh, diagnosis and, and management. So I'm really looking forward to to discussing this and, and learning something today. So, um, Anna, look, let's let's kick off at the start. So let's think about pneumonitis and let's think about, you know, the groups of patients we see and, and maybe some of the the risk factors that that we're aware of. So um, maybe if if we start there, you know. Talk me through how you think about pneumonitis in terms of who gets pneumonitis, what types of immunotherapy uh, are more likely to cause it, uh, you know, and, and maybe let's contrast that with maybe colitis, which um, is a little bit different. So, so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think pneumonitis is one of those things that we sort of knew about and had a few patients that were sort of coming through. And then we got to the point where we started seeing a bit more recognising it as a, as a more common thing than maybe we'd previously realised. And then COVID happened and it all got a bit confusing because I think then we were sort of trying to work out what was COVID, what was immunotherapy. I think in some cases, patients' cases, there were probably a bit of both. So we've, we've sort of, and then we've sort of gone from there, really. So I think, you know, the, the, the changes in pneumonitis and the way we think about it, and the way we investigate it have changed a lot, but probably because of the increased frequency, increased use of immunotherapy alongside, you know, various viral infections, obviously most predominantly COVID, but now obviously we've got lots of influenza viruses and various other things that seem to be sort of more avid than they used to be. So it's been quite an interesting time, I think, in the world of pneumonitis. In terms of patients that I think about when I'm sort of um, considering people who might get pneumonitis, I think there's there's two groups of people. Well, there's two two ways of thinking about it. One is the is this person more at risk because of the the treatment or the, their their malignancy, or is this person more at risk of struggling if they were to get pneumonitis because of their underlying lung disease? So I think for me those are those are those are two two patient groups, and I think we know that combination agents using two um, two immunotherapies together, particularly a CTLA four or PD PD one. PDL1 combination certainly seems to give you a higher frequency of pneumonitis. Um, and so I think you have to think about it as a differential, particularly in those patients. I think interestingly, when we've looked at the chemotherapy, immunotherapy versus immunotherapy alone groups, they don't seem to get more pneumonitis. And I always think this is really important because when we whenever we look at incidents, we always think, you know, are, are these people more at risk? So what we tend to find is they're not more at risk, but neither are they less at risk. They just have a similar risk. So I think that's the always thing to remember, you know, when we talk about other, you know, are they are they at increased risk of, of X, Y, and Z? No, but they are actually at a similar risk. So it's still there. It's just not particularly potentiated. It doesn't seem to be in the chemoimmunotherapy group. That said, when you're thinking about patients and whether they're going to tolerate treatment, I think the way I always think about it is what what is what is in this patient's person's history that makes you think, oh, this if they were to get pneumonitis, they might really struggle. So I, I find that understanding their background pulmonary um, history is really quite useful. And again, it comes back to, I think we say this all the time, but in immunotherapy, it's all in the history and in medicine generally, isn't it? I think we've been taught that from a young age, but I think in, in, it really plays out in immunotherapy. So have they got COPD, but not just have they got COPD, write that on your past medical history, but actually what is that functional impact? What does it mean they can and can't do? Um, 
are they still smoking if they were a smoker? How many inhalers do they have? How many breakthrough packs do they do they do they need a year? Have they ever been admitted to hospital with their CUPD? Have they ever been escalated? Because actually, again, that just tells you about their physiological lung reserve. And for me, what I've learned is that actually that is the bit that talks about sort of risk from problems with pneumonitis because that's ultimately when, when we're thinking about immunotherapy that's what we're worried about isn't it it's not whether somebody gets a bit of inflammation somewhere it's what impact that's going to have on them long term and is that going to cause them lots of problems so I think that that for me is 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 really important so understanding their background lung disease have they got any um, interstitial lung disease and interestingly there are quite a few patients that we're finding that we've been admitted and, and diagnosed with lung cancer particularly and then when you're going back over their scans or when they're first reviewed they've actually got a degree of interstitial lung disease that's been undiagnosed so have they got that have they got bronchiectasis have they got any other respiratory issue um, that will make it quite difficult for them to cope if they were to get pneumonitis um, and the other thing I think is at this point is thinking about spirometry so we're, we're in a fortuitous position in a lung cancer population because most of them get spirometry on their workup because they um, they generally speaking are we're thinking about whether they're going to need surgery at some point so would they tolerate anaesthetic have they got the lung reserve they need to, to, to survive without parts of them so it's quite useful and we don't do that for anybody else. So actually, there's a lot of conversation with that I've had between me and my my sort of respiratory physician colleagues about whether we should be doing some degree of baseline spirometry for people, um, because actually it gives you a good idea of what their reserve is. And also, if you then repeat it when they've got inflammation, you've got some idea about what that means and puts it into context. And I have to say, I'm not doing that on everybody at the moment. I don't know whether, whether you are, but I do find it useful if I have done that and then I've got a lung cancer patient who's then got pneumonitis. It is useful to know where I'm aiming for, for them to get back to because we're not necessarily aiming for everybody to be back at the same the same time point so for me that's how I think about it what what are their what are their sort of treatment cancer risks I don't think we see particularly more pneumonitis in lung cancer patients than we do in other patient groups um there's there's a there's more groups I think we're going to have a chat about radiotherapy in a bit that, that that probably does does propagate it but I tend to find that patients with lung cancer have got less physiological reserve because of their background um, lung history and so they do tend to get more sort of significant pneumonitis going forward but that's how I think about it treatment type effects and then what's the what's the underlying person like and how well will they tolerate it if they were to get it I don't know if that reflects your thoughts yeah no I think it does uh, I think for me the 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 interesting thing about that that lung cancer group, like you say, is it, it comes down to physiological reserve. And, and it was nice that you brought up the, the radiotherapy issue. So, you know, I've had a number of patients actually quite recently who are the stage three patients who have had chemo rad and then go on to have some sort of immunotherapy afterwards. And, and a number of those patients have ended up with pneumonitis. Um, and, and that, as you say, that can be quite tricky because you've got other reasons for, in essence, scarred looking changes on a on a CT scan um, and I think the other thing just to bring out you know for the audience is that you know like like many toxicities we do see it more commonly with combination but with pneumonitis we do seem to see it a little bit more commonly with anti-PD-1 compared to anti-CTLA-4 um, which is you know obviously different to, to what we see in colitis where it tends to be the other way around. And I think the point you made about baseline lung function, so we're having exactly the same conversation at the moment. We're not doing it routinely, but you're right. You know, we know that, uh, and we'll probably talk about lung function and, and transfer factor when we get to investigations a little bit later, but I, I definitely do find it useful to get the, the, to have a lung function to refer to and almost know how much capacity that patient's got. Yeah, I think it's, it's always interesting, isn't it? We do, we, we, 
I think one of the things that I find quite interesting is the amount of physiological awareness we have to have of our patient group now partly because we can cause inflammation of literally any bit of them but understanding that sort of that baseline status going down to things like concomitant medications are they on things that are known to cause um, a particular a particular side effect in their own right I think we have to delve quite a lot more deeply than we maybe have done in, in historically to sort of just understand where we where we up as uh, we are as a baseline it's in, it's very interesting I think yeah and I think um so the point you made about chemo I thought was really nice you're right I, I don't see a particularly increased rate I have had a couple of patients and I'm, I'm sure you have too Anna that are on sort of targeted therapies TKIs you know EGFR inhibitors and I have seen more pneumonitis with those and 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 I you know we know that a number of those drugs can cause pneumonitis so I think that they can be a diagnostic challenge I wonder if you've had experience of those yeah absolutely so I think you know there I've had certainly got patients who've had um, serial TKI and IO or actually in combination that ha- that have I think it goes back to following those um, those sort of rules of thumb but um, in terms of sort of taking out the the the, the TKI and, and seeing if you can settle things down and seeing if then there's an ongoing ongoing issue but I think pneumonitis is incredibly difficult to treat irrespective of what the propagating drug is so I think that's that's probably the difference again for me between pneumonitis and colitis in, in the kind of patients who are being treated in combinations of SACT, not just um, dual IO, is that actually for pneumonitics, just taking away the propagating a- agent often isn't isn't enough. And even if it's um, even if it's been caused uh, by one drug rather than the other, they still, generally speaking, get quite a lot of inflammation, and will generally speaking still need steroid therapy plus or minus other therapeutics to calm things down. It doesn't it doesn't tend to get better if you just take the take the TKI away. And also, I think there's there's quite a lot of evidence that that some of those combinations can they they can sort of synergistically work together in terms of the mechanism, so that you get you get sort of a a, a combination cause pneumonitis rather than it being one drug or the other. And certainly, we know in the trials, you know, there have been trials with immunotherapy and, and EGFR inhibitors in, in lung cancer and actually they, they've stopped them because of pneumonitis. So it's a very real thing, I think. Um, and But I would say my approach to managing a pneumonitis, even if they're on a combination agent, um, is actually very similar with pneumonitis. Whereas with, with colitis, as we've previously discussed, we've got a slightly different approach. They can do sort of supportive therapies for a while and see if it gets better by with, withdrawing the propagating agent that we, we think is going on. For the pneumonitis patients, actually, they do still seem to need stuff to calm to calm the, the, the pneumonitis down and they do need, seem to need an immunosuppressive agent to do that. So I think it's one of those areas where actually I would treat them identically if there's an immunotherapy in their combination as I would do if they were uh, on immunotherapy alone, um, which has been quite an interesting learning point yeah okay so so let's sort of start to think about um sort of diagnosis and and investigation maybe if we think about two different scenarios i think we we face quite commonly so let's start with a patient who's presenting with some symptoms and then we'll do a patient who's got just diagnosed radiologically and think about how we'd approach that so thinking about the patient who's got some symptoms anna what you know what are the most common symptoms for those who are fairly new um you know uh, to to immunotherapy or, or managing this group of patients what symptoms should they be looking out for? Because I guess my feeling is some of these symptoms are really quite general. They're a bit more short of breath. They may have a bit of a cough. And so I guess, is there anything that's kind of, you know, hallmarky, I guess, for, for identifying pneumonitis? 
I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? So so again, you're right. They are they're a, they're a challenging breed for the for because of the fact that they can be quite well and and actually they 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 can have sort of quite organ specific but quite um, subtle signs. So yes, increased shortness of breath, in, a dry cough is particularly I think um, common. You do get the odd person that has a productive cough, but the vast majority are dry, um, and they will normally describe having a cough that's worse at night, better in the day. Uh, it's not universal, but certainly they'll they'll sort of say they've been up at night um, and with a dry cough that they can't get on top of. Um, in terms of sort of the shortness of breath, it tends to be that they're fairly settled at rest, but but struggle significantly when they've when they've been walking on an exertion. So I um, when we talk about investigations, I do quite a lot of ambulatory O2 sats just to see whether they get a big drop on exertion. So that's that's the other thing. The other thing is the absence of other symptoms. So for me, there is the kind of the conversation about being aware of the fact that these things might happen and the changes might be quite subtle, and that patients need to report them and and colleagues need to be aware of the fact that that possibly is significant because often if somebody says you know I've got lung cancer I've got COPD and I'm feeling a bit more breathless that won't necessarily be met with oh you might have pneumonitis <laughs> that will yeah. often be met with okay <laughs> um, have you taken your rescue pack and all that sort of stuff and that's not wrong I think it's just always with this patient group it's important to have it as a differential in the back of your mind um, and and does this person need a bit more of a look at do they need to come in for a review but the other thing is the absence of symptoms. So, um, so again, when you think normally with our, our pneumonitis patients, you have an exacerbation of COPD, uh, an infection of, of some description, or if they're generally speaking otherwise well, you'd want to rule out PE. So you've got sort of your differential list. And in terms of the symptoms of those... As I said, it's normally a dry cough rather than a productive cough. It's very rare for people to get fevers with pneumonitis. There's some people that get can get a low level Pyrex in the region sort of 37.5, but actually good going oh, significant pyrexia is 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 uncommon. And so I would say sort of at that point you'd be wondering about whether there's something else going on. It's not to say it can't happen, but less commonly. They generally speaking don't have any pain so pneumonitics tend to get a, a pain-free situation so you're thinking about pleuritic pain as your differential so I think there are some hallmark symptoms but also there is the absence of those other things that will lead you towards those differentials that I think are really really helpful when you're taking the history. The other thing is understanding the onset from when you you know when you had when you had your, your last immunotherapy and whether they've had problems with previous immunotherapy um, uh, doses and actually whether this is a, a you know something that they, they've seen before because again with our patients who have got uh, background uh, respiratory conditions they can sort of describe a sort of evolving picture where they've had some degree of breathlessness that then is getting worse so I think again it's just about understanding the the nature and the fluctuation of the breathlessness um, and and the fact that it's normally associated with some degree of cough the other thing I think is really important is if patients are coming back recurrently that that again goes to that iterative building process so I would never I think it's really important to make sure that if people keep coming back with worsening breathlessness that you really think about pneumonitis as a differential because actually what that's what we tend to find and sometimes they'll have fairly bland investigations to start with and then they'll still have symptoms and then you investigate them again two weeks later and actually they've got significant significant changes so that kind of evolving pattern again for me is quite a big red flag to say this is probably somebody who's got an inflammatory picture we just haven't necessarily seen it yet because it was too mild when they first started with symptoms and again that comes back to their physiological reserve and whether any just a little bit of inflammation makes them breathless or not 
Okay. So I'm thinking of a case that, that I got emailed about late on Friday night. So I had a consultant email me um, saying, I've done a CT scan. It's a, it was actually a, a soft gel cancer patient um, on chemo IO. They've done a CT scan and it looks, and it's been queried that they're queried pneumonitis, query atypical infection. Um, we get a little bit of background. The patient's well. There's there's no specific problems. Um, and the question that, that the consultant poses is, you know, what do we do with those patients who are asymptomatic but have got what radiologically could be infection, but radiologically some, you know, the report says query pneumonitis. So how how should we approach those patients, Anna, that are completely well, but radiologically somebody thinks this might be pneumonitis? I think the first question, the first point is to have a conversation with a radiologist, actually, or if you're if you've seen a lot of this, actually, to look at the scans yourself, because I think this can I think it's very positive, but it's becoming something that radiology generally is much more aware of. So I think understanding whether you're talking about tiny changes that may be the beginning of something versus something that is quite clearly a radiological inflammation. So I think understanding how how convinced they are that there's something there is the first point before I would do anything. I then have a conversation with the patient to see if they genuinely are asymptomatic because when you ask about things then often you will find things that you haven't been told sort of voluntarily just because people are sort of adapting and living with the, the way that their condition evolves so if you ring them and say you know have you felt more breathless they'll quite often go oh yeah actually I have rather than it being they just haven't it hasn't been severe enough for them to pick up the phone and ring hotline or you know whoever they're whoever they're told to call so I think there's that there's that element to it um and then in terms of thinking about whether you treat it, I do. if I'm convinced on the radiological findings, even if a patient is asymptomatic, increasingly I will treat them. Um, and actually we've, we've just updated our protocols to say if they've got mild changes on, on, on uh, imaging, um, then we would give, her a, give a lower dose of steroid for a shorter period of time. But we do give them, we, we, will, we will consider treating them. So we've sort of said, actually, I think it's worth considering doing that. Obviously, if you think there's a chance that this is an infection, either viral or, or or bacterial, then I'd probably say in that circumstance where it's a bit unclear and they're very asymptomatic, then it's not unreasonable to either monitor it and, and, and review them again in a relatively short time frame, which is obviously what we would do with a mild condition of any immunotherapy toxicity, or actually consider do they need some antibiotics and then review things again further down the line. So I think it's there's not a one size fits all, but I think if you haven't got, if you if having reviewed the imaging and reviewed the patient, you're you're not convinced that this is infective and there's definite changes, then I think ultimately it's quite likely that that patient will develop worsening symptoms because why wouldn't they? There's nothing to stop that getting worse. Um, and actually a, a lower dose of steroids for a shorter period of time means they can normally be managed and then not have an interruption in their treatment. So I, I increasingly, um, and, it, and as I say, it's not for everyone, but I would increasingly consider giving them a small, a, a short course of steroids to, to, to manage those radiological findings. Because in my experience, if you don't, they will get worse. Okay, so that's really interesting because a lot of the guidance, as you know, we've been involved in a number of guidance, often yeah. suggests for grade one, radiological only, not to do anything. But what I think I'm hearing, Anna, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that increasingly, if, they, if this looks like pneumonitis and feels like pneumonitis, actually getting in early and treating that with some steroids, you feel based on experience, and that's what this pod, these podcasts are really about, actually is probably the right thing to do. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody would criticise you for that. To be honest, and you're right. So all of our all of our guidance say that you know if you've got a mild toxicity, you should monitor and plan to follow them up. And I think that's still completely appropriate. But we know there's quite a lot of evidence that is um, evolving about decent doses of steroids earlier lead to earlier termination of problems and less complications and less severity. Um, and so yeah, no, that that was certainly that is the, the sort of direction of travel. And it's not, and I say it's not for everyone, but I think it's very reasonable. And you're right, it's it's sort of it's an experiential thing that um that we would treat them partly because what we wouldn't want to find is that you're using you're needing to stop treatment and use higher doses of steroids as that pneumonitis has evolved um, and as we know io toxicity quite commonly evolves it's quite rare for us to get something where we've got some form of definitive objective finding that then just disappears um so yeah it's it, it it's not wrong to monitor them and see how they go that because that is what we would we would sort of historically done but yeah for some patients i will i will give them um a, a lower a lower dose normally 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and then weaners i would do normally every three days is what what we are doing in terms of managing those patients who've got asymptomatic radio radiographic changes if i'm if i'm convinced that they are in fact those changes and they don't have another reason for them okay and 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 i guess just for the audience i mean i think we should just reassure them that actually it's not wrong sometimes to give antibiotics and the steroids alongside each other because you know it, it often can be very difficult for for the reasons we've you know talked about in terms of past medical history predisposition you know so i think sometimes people almost see that as a failure of diagnosis to to cover both bases but my personal feeling anna is actually even more with pneumonitis is quite reasonable sometimes to give the steroids and antibiotics is, is that your feeling too absolutely i think um uh, more often than not particularly in the in the unwell patient who you're querying pneumonitis in i think it's actually incredibly difficult to be convinced particularly early on that this is definitely an inflammatory not infective process so i think there's 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 no uh, no negative about um, making sure that you're covering for infection as well as inflammation. I think also we know that patients that have got inflammation of any of any part of them are actually more at risk of superadded bacterial infection. So there is a quite possibility that you've got both things going on at the same time. Um, and so again, if you and and, it, and it's really difficult to peel it to, to, to tease it apart. Um, so yeah, no, I absolutely would agree. And also depending on the antibiotic you use, there is some anti-inflammatory effect of, of some of the antibiotics, particularly doxycycline, which can be helpful. So I think actually what you end up with is 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 treating the person in front of you. You're not sure what's going on. I think it's very reasonable to think about steroids and antibiotics. Um, and then you can then you can start understanding and unpicking a bit more. You got a chance to get more investigations back you can understand the picture a bit better um, I also um, when it comes down to sort of thinking about um, what's going on here I will also always make sure I'm excluding a PE in these patients because I think that's really important so for me those three things and they can sometimes co-occur so you can get all three things going on which gets gets quite complicated in terms of uh, uh, the patient and, and and sort of treating them but I don't I don't think any, anybody would criticize the use of uh, of antibiotics and steroids in an in an acutely breathless person who's had immunotherapy and that is particularly the case if you're treating somebody who's got who's had chemotherapy as well because I think that's the other thing it's really important to think about the other group that I think is important for us to always think about is the patient that's had lots of immunotherapy toxicity and then presenting with new pneumonitis changes because the question for me then 
is, is this pneumonitis or is this an opportunistic infection because they've had lots of immunosuppression for other reasons? So I always think about bacterial infection, but also I know we'll, 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 we'll next discuss a bit more about investigations, but I always think about opportunistic infection in patients who have had multiple immunotherapy toxicities because we have immunosuppressed them um, for a period of time. And if they've got new inflammatory changes, is that in fact something like PCP rather than it being um, a pneumonitis? So it's just about having that that wide thought process. I don't think anybody would criticise you for, for covering for all of those as you were unpicking what's going on. Yeah, and um, you're right, we will talk about PCP because I've had a couple of really difficult cases of patients who've had PCP and both cases were patients who had recurrent pneumonitis and I'd given lots of steroids over a prolonged period of time. And actually, you know, I, I thought it was just another flare of their pneumonitis and in hindsight, I didn't see it early enough. So... Go, sorry, go, go ahead. No, go. no, I just think that's a really, really important point. The fact that you can, and that can be what's happened. So I think sometimes what happens is when you come to a different, you know, when patients have multiple different flares and then, you know, and then and then they get PCP, for example, um, you go, oh, well, we, that was what it was. But quite often they do start with the inflammatory thing. And then I say, is, as I say, they get either super added infection or because they've been immunosuppressed. So actually the, the patient's condition and the reason for the, their condition can evolve over time. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, always have to be that, that, that it's the same problem all the way along so it probably was that your patient started with pneumonitis and have ended up with PCP as a, as a sort of a sequelae of their inflammation and and the situation and um, so I think sometimes we look back and go oh, we should have done something different but actually it probably was that and it's and it's and then it's just as times evolved and the conditions evolved so I think it's an interesting one to to sort of navigate that. Okay great so look I think you know today we've already talked I mean we're already 20 odd minutes in but we've covered some of the prevalence, uh, you know, the, the PD-1 versus CTLA-4 combination, the role that sometimes chemo rads or, or radiotherapy can predispose. We've talked about some of the comorbidities. We've started to get into that space about radiological diagnosis, some symptoms, the importance of a dry cough. I think let's pull this one to an end and then let's get into the next one, into that, that would almost back on the cliffhanger of patients got some, you know, changes on a CT, you know, they've got a little bit of vague symptoms. And then let's start to think in the next podcast about what kind of workup we're going to do for that patient. So I'll see you on the other side, Anna. Fantastic, Ricky. I'll see you there.